I hope on this uh, retreat that some of the uh, insights and understanding of Dhamma certainly seems to be coming through to many of you because you can well see it is a whole change of of uh, attitude really a way of seeing and, and reflection that is very very different from the habitual worldly cultural ethnic conditioned world that we've all regarded as real Just the limitation of our, just the, the way we tend to think in, in the modern Western world, which is based on the, on the assumption that the material world is ultimately real. And therefore, goes on question when we talk about reality as being the kind of, um, that, Reality is what we, what we see, the objective world. Reflection then allows us to question that, what is, what is generally regarded as real, not to deny it or to, uh, to take any, just a, uh, take a position of a negativity towards it, but to investigate and examine. That's the, the purpose of the Buddha Dhamma, is to examine, investigate, look into the nature of things. And so the self is questioned. What is the self? Is there a permanent self? Is there a soul? Is there a creator God? What is the creation? What is creativity? What is, uh, what, what is it that creates? What is death? In our position as human beings, then, we, we observe the, what is the, the beginning and the ending. And we just w- do, do anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath. If you can extrapolate from just that, from just the beginning and see that is that that's all there is the beginning and then the the point between the beginning and the end and the ending of an inhalation exhalation just that pattern alone isn't it is the pattern of all conditioned phenomena the arising and the cessation you can't it would be absurd to think of an arising without a without a cessation, just like to think of it of an inhalation that didn't ever exhale. If it was just a one inhalation, it would be well, that that would be totally absurd, wouldn't it? And yet we can assume that there is a, a kind of continuous development or progress or expansion without its, its uh, exhalation, 
or its cessation. And the position of the Buddha is the position of knowing. When the refuge in the Buddha, Bhutangsanangachami, is taking the Buddha position, not becoming a Buddha, but being the being that which is awake. If you take refuge in Buddha, then it means that that refuge is in mindfulness. Buddha's the mindful one, so if we take refuge in Buddha, we do what Buddhas do. Which doesn't mean sitting on lotuses. It means being mindful. And it's the Buddha that sees the Dhamma, or the way things are. We're not asking you to see anything in particular. We're not asking you to look for lights, or, or for devadas, or for Brahma, uh, Brahma gods, or, or for anything, anything at all. I mean, some of you see peculiar things, some of you don't see anything peculiar. It's a monotonous conditions, or just a pain, or whatever. But whether it's uh, fantastic and odd and peculiar or nutty, wacky, stupid or trivial or just one inhalation, one exhalation or just a, a pain in your knee it's a, you're observing it as it is it's a, something that arises and ceases begins and ends so that's taking the Buddha, refuge in Buddha the Buddha position of knowing mindfulness, seeing things as they are. Then the avicca, if we, if we get caught in avicca, then we don't see it as it is. Suddenly it becomes more than that. My pain, my breathing, my inhalation, my exhalation, my fantasy life, my lights, my devadas, my brahma gods, or I'm, my lack of having anything interesting in my mind. I'm just a boring old not nobody. No Brahmas, no Devas, no lights. Just boring old pain in the back. Just a boring old inhalation, boring old exhalation. Mind. I'm just a boring inhaler and exhaler. That's added, isn't it? Mine, me inhaling and me. There's exhaling, there's inhaling and exhaling. But there's nothing to add to it. It's just this way. Saying that my inhalation is something extra. And if from a vicha, then, then that, that means that that uh, I'm no longer really seeing it as it is. I've made something, something. I've added something to it that isn't the way it is. And so that addition, well, if as long as there's a vicha, will influence my life and my way and my rights and my body and my feelings and my memories. And, and then everything becomes me and mine. Everything is interpreted from this selfish view. I'm getting old, I'll die. These are, these are my robes, this is my life, 
and then because there's me, there's going to be you, and then the whole world, uh, with all its complexities and problems arise. We feel frightened, fear and desire predominate, and the result of all that is Dharamarana Sokapariteva Tukatomanasa Upayasa. Misery. So there we are. Just from one slight error, taking it all in the wrong way. I mean, actually, this is it, whether it's fant- fantastic uh, images in your mind, hallucination, mad or, or sane or whatever or boring pain, or inhalation, exhalation, the Buddha is the one who knows that all that arises ceases. All Dhamma is not self. It's not a permanent self. Nothing is me. There's no real, uh, no real objective, me or mine. Like one of the questions people ask is, well, and who is it that knows? You're trying to find you're trying to find yourself. I'll ask you, who is it that knows? If I if if I if I judge you, who's sitting here? You think you're just playing a game, isn't it? Some kind of interesting co-on, Arjun Zanato. Because he's sitting here, isn't he? Who's sitting here? I don't have to ask who's sitting here because I'm sitting here. Not a matter of who, is it? It's just the fact that there's the sitting here. So there's the knowing. There's a, it's not any one who knows. There is knowing. And the who is unnecessary. It's added. It's an assumption. It's from a from the avicca position of of somebody, some separate person, some entity that has a reality uh, uh, that we, we create that reality. So that reality is not real, it's an illusory reality. Now we've heard some rather profound reflections on the Paticca Samuppada during this time so that it's uh, quite quite uh, wonderful to hear uh, you using your minds for Dhamma rather than for selfish uh, attachment or for guilt, remorse, self-disparagement, fantasy, all the way we can use our minds in, in wasteful ways or just try to suppress everything. Just try not to think. And I remember one of my insights years ago was uh, when I was a Samanera, and this, there was this Canadian monk. Uh, his name was Sumino. Not the, our Sumino, but this is another Sumino. And this Sumino, uh, was, he told me that all we have to do is stop thinking. So I thought, well, I'll try that. So I started to try to stop thinking. Oh, it was really a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> just an act of will, just to stop thinking, 
made me even think more. How do how do I stop thinking? Uh, then my mind would start would go and to start thinking about stopping thinking. Then I could just I, my mind at that time was so was so obsessed with thought it didn't even notice that that when I wondered how do I stop thinking my mind actually stopped at that moment I didn't notice that because then I start thinking about well how do I how can I stop thinking there is no perspective on thought no space no emptiness to see or to notice that thinking arises and ceases it just seems to be one continuous chain of one thought after another and there's never any real there was no there wasn't a realization of cessation or of the thinking processes having ceased because all I knew at that time was uh, the only time there was there was any sense of of being somebody or being conscious was through thought And so that year, I began to really work with my mind when I was a summoner, really ex- explore it. Remember reading Charles Luke's book, the Chan and Zen series, and uh, the first volume with the Huateau. I, I developed this Huateau with a Chinese uh, kind of a Chinese Zen uh, form where. You, you, I, I'd usually, this was my letting go practice. I'd say, let go. I'd say, who is it that lets go? And I'd examine all around the, who is it that lets go? And, and uh, just explore that question. And the, and the uh, exploration of doubt, because that's a question, isn't it? It leaves your mind in the state of doubt. Who? Who let go? Who? Then I'd see question marks in my mind. Who is it that lets go? Or what is it that lets go? And keep doing that so, you, so that just that, that investigation of that of that Huato, the, the 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 beginning of it, the first word, then the end of it with the question, and the exploration, investigation of the mind that wasn't thinking, and then the mind that had a thought in it, the thought and the and the space around the thought, the end of the thought, the end of the the question. then the purpose of the Huato was to develop that practice around the question, where the, the arising of the doubt. They had one sutra called the Diamond Sutra, Cutter of the Doubt. And when I first read that sutra, it, was, it left my mind in total state of bewilderment and doubt. Bewilderment, another kind of doubt, isn't it? This Mahayana stuff is extremely bewildering. I think that's all it's meant to be, just kind of boggle your mind so the thinking process stops. 
But that's fair enough, isn't it? That's skillful means to completely zap you so your thinking process starts because you can't really think of what it means. What, what is it trying to say? And of course, the, the desire to know and to figure it all out comes up. Wanting to know, wanting to have an answer, wanting to, to, to say, this is what it means. It's how our, our minds are conditioned through modern education, is it? to answer the question. As soon as the question comes, we feel obligated or compulsive, uh, uh, an, an impulse to answer. But in investigation of, of the mind, we're, we're observing this, the impulse to answer, the, the, the obligation to answer the question, rather than just being aware of not knowing something, the unknown. Now, before that, I never thought that, that I always assumed that you should know everything and, that, and then a, that a Buddha would know everything, would have all the answers, neat little answers, all nicely, mighty there, this is the question fired and the answer, pop, zoom, there it is, just comes up immediately. Uh, and that you're, you're uh, and you know everything, you, you, know, you, you know everything about everything. And your mind's so quick, you're so intelligent, so brilliant, that any question asked, you can answer it immediately, not without a hesitation or even having to ponder. That was my image of, of what a Buddha could do, kind of like super intellect, super brain. But instead, what we were doing, what I was doing with this water was was accepting and noticing not knowing something. Now, what do you think that's kind of lazy man's practice? Or you think that's right to, to sit around and not know something? Shouldn't we all be striving to know, to figure everything out, to have all the answers? Because there's a, there's a kind of guilt and a sense of restlessness. And when, when we, what is that? What are we, what, what? What, what is the answer to that question? And then we, we either drift away from it because we, the, uh, we forget it, try to forget it, repress it, or we sit there trying to, to figure it all out. And the purpose of the Huato was to just observe that, the struggle and the compulsiveness, the obsessiveness, the desire to know, to have the answer. So ask a question just like, who am I? And then the boring old answer would be, I am Samedo Bhikkhu. So what? So that wasn't a very satisfying answer. <coughs> you ask the question and, and you say, no, Samedo Bhikkhu is not the answer. You're not going to settle for that because that's the, everybody knows that. Who am I? And you already we know you, you know the conventional answers, so you're not you, you don't uh, feel any impulse to use that. So that there's then the awareness of the of just what a question, a doubt, an uncertainty does to the mind. You're realizing that point where 
there's, where there's no answer, where the mind just goes blank and empty. The thinking process stops. And you're realizing that, where, the, where thought ceases, where thinking has not arisen yet, where the thought ha- that before has ceased and, and another one hasn't arisen, you're, you'll realize that's a realization of the mind. Because at that point there's awareness and it's not like you, you've fallen asleep or, or, uh, or in a trance. There's, there's clarity, awareness, awakenness. And there's a knowing, not knowing the answer, but knowing that there's no answer. Knowing the unknown. and knowing the known. So when it came to, to a questionnaire and they say, what is your name? They say, Sumedho Bhikkhu. When an appropriate time to answer the question, then you do. Not a pro- in, a, in a certain situation, they just want to know what your name is. They're not, there's, not, there's not a Huato or a Koan or anything. There's no point in playing games, is it? So when they say, what is your name, under certain, in certain conditions, I, I say, Sumato Bhikkhu. Sometimes I say, Venerable Sumato Bhikkhu. Sometimes I say, Ajahn Sumato. And, and sometimes I even use my Christian name, which I don't like to use. I've gotten a, uh, well, not real aversion, but no longer feel uh, that that's uh, my name, so, but I, because it's legally my name on my passport, I have to use it now and then. Someday, maybe the immigration service in the UK will be so advanced, so enlightened, that we can just have blank passports. <laughs> But I, I doubt that I'll be live long enough to see that. Now this is just one way of examining the conditioned and unconditioned, or form and emptiness. If you're making the conditioned and the unconditioned, like... Uh, unconditioned, can remain a great kind of vast mystery, isn't it? The deathless, unconditioned, unborn, unoriginated can remain something so kind of abstract and so, you know, uh, that you think uh, that you can't possibly uh, ever hope to, to realize the unconditioned. Because as a concept, as a kind of intellectual concept, and that it, it is a mind-boggling concept, isn't it? The unconditioned, what could that be? And your mind stops, isn't it? What is unborn, uncreated, unoriginated? Can't, can't get anything from that, can you? Can you get anything out of your head from that? What is it that unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, unconditioned, deathless, 
can't think of anything, can you? <laughs> so you notice that, that those particular terms, you think of the created, the born, and the originated, a lot of things come up. This is created, and this is born, and this is originated. This is a, one of the original uh, English Sankatis, Ajahn Prabhupada, double layer, uh, done in the style of, of English Sankatis, kind of a was born here in England. It's a condition. This is a condition. Tomato Bhikkhu is a condition. The condition we can go on, we can just spend the whole time looking at it. We, we can really get into conditions, can't we? The born, the created, the originated. Oh, what a relief. He's, he's gotten off that unconditioned, unborn, uncreated track. Because nothing comes up in my mind when, when, he, when he talks about that. I just go blank, don't know what he's talking about. Imagine, I can't imagine anything unborn. But when you talk about birth, wow, my mind really gets going. Birth and uh, sex. <laughs> that really sets human beings off. And so a lot of sex and violence and people... Uh, Personality. Who is it? You know what? Is, what all the different kind of characters we have here? Different personalities and qualities. And difference between men and women. And different ethnic groups and nationalities and classes and races and types and prototypes. And then there's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. We could go on <laughs> endlessly with the entertainment world of the conditioned realm. What a relief, isn't it? It's so absorbing. There's television, isn't it? With, if we don't have one here, but I mean, the whole world is now watching television. You fly over the slums of Bombay and you see little shacks made out of cardboard and tin with television antennas on <laughs> So even the, the poorest, most dismal, poverty-stricken coolie in, in India uh, has a conditioned world to absorb into, as well as the Queen Elizabeth and Princess Di. But in the unconditioned, they all, where do they go? Where's Queen Elizabeth, Princess Di, <laughs> and poverty stricken coolie? And exploring the mind and, and just beginning to see how to, to if the, the intellectual life of a university is all through the conditioned realm, isn't it? You, you study anthropology and psychology and sociology and philosophy and mathematics and all different sciences and the arts and literature and language and all the conditions and it goes on and on and on the kind of undergraduate and then graduate and then people I knew people in Berkeley that that had been there for years their whole life studying one thing after another you never finish in the university there's always something more to learn
some more, more conditions to absorb into. But with the unconditioned, blank. This is, Lung Po Choi used to say that. He said, the worldly life, he said, there's no end to it. It just goes on and 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 on. There's never any end to it. You never get anywhere. You just keep going and you never reach an end. But he said, the holy life, you reach an end. Everything ceases. There's a cessation of the world. The conditions cease. <coughs> so this statement about the conditioned and the unconditioned, it's, it's, uh, it's a reflection and an investigation. So we observe the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, not as if it were some kind of ultimate truth in some kind of universal uh, way, in some some great thing that's going to happen where the where suddenly the whole the, the material world dissolves into nothingness or, or has a moment of total uh, an annihilation but we can actually witness or begin to understand the relationship of the condition to the unconditioned just through observing thinking Just how a thought arises and ceases. And the knowing, that ability to know, to be aware, to investigate the self as that which arises and ceases when there's a thought of me and mine. Because when you're not thinking me and mine, there's no self. The self is something that is born into the mind so that we... When there's no thought of self, there's no self. Even the feelings we have, we have pain. If we just observe pain, the condition of pain, we needn't call it anything. We needn't call it my pain. And that's something extra. You can... You, there's, there's pain. Pain is this way. That's a reflection on it. But when, when it becomes my pain, out of avicca, not, not out of convention, but out of avicca, then, then my pain proliferates on into I don't want to have pain. Why do I have to suffer? How can I get rid of it? How can I get away from it? Because physical pain tends to bring the that kind of attitude of aversion. And aversion, uh, when we get caught into aversion, then we, we suffer from that, of wanting to get rid of something that we have that we don't like, don't want. And so we suffer because we have to be with something we don't want. And that's suffering. That's dukkha. When we're just with pain as it is, then there's no suffering. We're not, we're not creating dukkha. So pain is just that. It's not even pain. It's just a sensation. It's just the way it is. And the more mindful, accepting, aware of it as it really is, then we make no problems about it. When we make no problems about it, then things, their the karmic force, when it's time, ceases. And therefore, 
We're not making any, any, any connections to it. We're allowing that which has arisen to cease according to its nature. There's nothing personal, nothing created, nothing added, nothing, uh, n- nothing made of it. It's just as it is. The truth of all, the face Sankaranita, all that arises ceases. It's just the way things are. It's not that things shouldn't arise or we're making a moral judgment against arising, that arising is bad. It's just the mere understanding and uh, through wisdom that what arises ceases. And then we say, sape tamma anatta, all tamma is is anatta or not self. So that means all sankharas are not self. Because <coughs> sankharas are dhammas. So that all the sankharas are, are not self. And when there's no self, they, when, 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 the mind, when the thinking mind ceases and there's no attachment, that isn't self either. There's no need to call it anything. It's like it's not necessary to 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 sit here and think that I'm sitting here. That's totally unnecessary for me to sit here and think I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here. Me, Sumedho Bhikkhu, I'm sitting here. It's not necessary to to name it. There's sitting, body sitting. It's like this. It's not anybody. Well, that's you, Venerable Sumedho. You're sitting there. But that's something added, isn't it? It's just just this, as it is. Abiding in that emptiness where there's no self, no self-arising, or no belief, no assumptions, about a self or a permanent self or a personality, there is intelligence because there's wis- we, one can align oneself with wisdom there. There's wisdom, there's the, the full use of intelligence aligned with wisdom, there's knowing, clarity, which is not, as soon as we claim it as a personal quality, we've lost it. I mean, I'm a very wise man and that's, a stupid statement. If I go around thinking, I'm a very wise man, or I am a Buddha, or I am the Buddha, or whatever, then that's a stupid statement. It comes from stupidity. So it's not a, uh, to go around thinking that, that, that intelligence and wisdom is personal is having, is, is only comes from a mind of an individual who is unenlightened, unawakened, does not see things as they really are. Because as we realize things as they are, such thoughts are seen only as thoughts. They're no longer grasped and made into a person who has become anything or attained anything whatsoever. So it's equally stupid to think you haven't attained anything. I haven't attained anything. I've been meditating now for how many years and I don't think I've attained anything. 
haven't gotten anywhere. That's also another, if you really believe that you are somebody who hasn't attained anything, hasn't gotten anywhere, then there's no wisdom in that in that either. That's a stupid statement. You've missed the whole point. Because it's not, it's not attaining or achieving or becoming somebody, is it? All that is the self-view that ceases. And there's the knowing that, that what arises ceases. Now this is training, using, uh, developing vicha rather than avicha. We're using vicha. You're not going to ever attain vicha. You'll never achieve it or attain it. You just use it. They have the teachings of the Buddha. They're vicha teachings. They're they're teachings that that point to the way things are. So it's not anything that you you uh, will find in the future something you have every opportunity to use more and more in your life here at Amaravati. Avicca then is is the view that I am somebody, I am a person, and really believe it, and that I am the five conduct. That this is reality, the real world is is the real world that's been conditioned into my mind. Robert Jackman, born in Seattle, Washington, 1934. Son of Helen and Clarence Jackman. Born in the Providence Roman Catholic Hospital. About 11 o'clock in the morning, July 27th. on a Friday in the year of the dog (laughs) and then I went to uh, uh, primary school and I went to Franklin High School our green and black so true we'll conquer all for you Some of these stupid things you never forget. (laughs) Gwendolyn, what are you to me? (laughs) So that one has a kind of personal history that seems real. We believe in that, that... We come from a line, a certain maybe ancestral line, and and that we are uh, from this, uh, we being born in in America. We're Americans. This is reality, and on and on in this way, the unquestioned conditioned world, because this was this was conditioned into the mind. One isn't born with a name. You're given a name, aren't you? You're not born thinking, I am an American or I'm an Englishman. That comes in through uh, the conditioning process. All that is conditioned, isn't it? It's added to you over the years. The way the world view 
like being born in the United States. Uh, we were told that the United States is the best country in the whole world. Now, I don't think they ever taught that in England, did they? I've never heard a British person ever say that. That's peculiar to Americans. But I don't think it's because I was born in America. I think it was one of those cultural values they placed into your mind called nationalism. And yet one can believe all that. Very, very, you know, I'm surprised. I was a fairly curious kind of child anyway, so I didn't, wasn't going to accept anything too easily. But a, a lot of my f little friends actually believed all that. They actually believed it. Didn't seem to question it. When I started questioning it, I was called anti-American. Like you, you, you didn't, you didn't support the party line. You were an enemy. Now we're also conditioned with various. Uh, feelings about ourselves, like what, what people say about us, with how attractive we are, how good we are. Are you a good little boy or a good little girl? And are you, uh, from what class do you come from? Are you, uh, you come from a good family? Or are you, do you behave yourself? Do you have good manners? Or are you uh, a barbarian? Are you a brat? Are you, uh, you have a bad temper? Are you greedy? Or, uh, are you lovable or unlovable or whatever? And all these these attitudes come to us as as, as we're growing up, don't we? Views about ourselves that we can regard as real. But they're actually views that are conditioned into the mind. We're born into these families and these society classes and societies and so forth and and, and we're just continually kind of bombarded with all these self views. When we go to school, then we're comparing ourselves with the other children. We have certain views about girls, and and if you if you're a little boy, you have certain views about girls. Remember, we used to hate little girls. Up to a certain age, you hate girls. We'd form these little clubs, uh, airplane clubs, and that. And first rule we, we'd have was no girls. <laughs> During the Second World War, I was uh, obsessed with airplanes. I was, uh, I was, I, I had uh, little uh, aircraft spotting guides that they you could buy and I would try to I'd, I'd have binoculars and try to look for enemy aircraft over <laughs> Seattle <laughs> none ever came <laughs> but I knew the statistics of the German and the Japanese uh, planes just waiting to, be, to catch the first glimpse of an enemy aircraft and be the first one to report it
Then we had different ad, uh, different competitive attitudes among little boys, and who was this, the toughest, the strongest, uh, and who was good at this or good at that. There's all this self self views were formed in relationships, uh, whether you were uh, it could prove you were better or worse, and there was always some bully around, wasn't there? And there in the neighborhood I grew up, there's always some bully coming to to uh, pick on you. I was fortunately one of the, always quite tall for my age. And I think that was, I realized that that in some ways a kind of an asset because uh, I guess height has a kind of, a, it has a kind of self-protective mechanism in it. You're not, uh, remember that uh, oftentimes the, the the smaller boys seem to get it more than the taller ones. Except there's always some bully that wanted to see if he could could challenge the tall ones. Uh, my nature, I'm not a fighter at all. It used to be painful to have to get involved in these silly things. But then the self-view is formed to all this, isn't it? Your, 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 your view of yourself and the world and, and how pleasant or painful or, or how, how many advantages you have or disadvantages are conditioned. And, 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 and this is all very much a, an assumption of a self, one's worth or worthlessness is perception, is a condition and it's put into your mind, isn't it? It's not the nature of your mind at all. It's not empty. It's not wise. It's not re- intelligent. It's merely something that that goes in. And if you never question, never look and examine and see the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is, then you could spend your whole life operating from some very stupid suggestion that was placed in your mind at a very young age. Now you can see this with my mother, for example, uh, told me that that she was an unwanted child. And so when my grandmother found out she was going to have my mother, she tried to have an abortion. Failed. My mother came out. <laughs> and grew up with this idea of being unwanted because of that. Uh, this kind of nagging, nagging fear her whole life. Now she's over it for uh, 86. She's, she's, <laughs> she's transcended it. But I remember this was, this was, and she's a very nice person, and everybody's wanted her her whole life, except her mother. <laughs> so she, she was, and I think even her mother did, and, but sometimes her mother didn't. But this, no matter how, uh, she had a, a devoted husband, and my sister and I, and we were all we all loved her very much. And a lot of friends. We always had oodles of friends. It was always considered a, a very lovable person. Everybody welcomed. But this incredible, haunting, nagging thing in her mind is, was. Nobody wants. 
Now that was obviously something that was probably from the womb. When you, you think of that, uh, if, you know, if a mother doesn't want a child in, in, when it's in the womb, I'm sure that it's picking up these bad vibes from the mother. Because this is, we're dealing with total sensitivity now. You know, we're not dealing with persons or people, but, but we realize that this whole universe and everything is, is, is about sensitivity and feeling. This sensual realm, the conditioned realm, is, is fully sensitive and feeling. So when, you, when people ask about whether a fetus is actually a conscious living being or something, you know, whatever, of course, it's, it's alive and it feels. Part of, it's a part of the totality. Who are we to say that just because it it isn't uh, it isn't fully mature that it isn't feeling anything and it's not nothing? Seems more sensible to assume that it is feeling, totally feeling, totally sensitive to the environment it's in. So we pick up, don't we? Uh, uh, we can live a, a neurotic life from childhood to to death just on these never-questioned, mistaken identities, identities, attachment to the conditioned realm, and then suffer accordingly, because all that avicca can only create endless amount of misery, isn't it? And Buddha made this very clear, the soka pariteva tukatomanasa upayasa sequence. So then the investigation, is when, when we realize that all of that is just conditioned, it's nothing more than like, they, they call it like soap bubbles or foam on the sea. And they use these terms meaning that they just have an appearance of being substantial, but when fully investigated, there's nothing there. There's no core, there's no kind of center to it or anything real, it's merely an illusory appearance of, of being solid, but when investigated, there's nothing there. So the, the conditioned realm is, uh, is, is, is not to be despised or to be negated or rejected, but to be seen for what it is. And that's why when we say all that begins ends, all that arises ceases, all Dhamma is not self, is actually being in that refuge of Buddha, the, posi- the Buddha position of seeing things as they really are, because we're no longer taking the conditions and judging them in personal, in, in the way of, of being personal, being me and mine. Good and bad are conditions, what pleasure and pain, and, and the whole, all the conditioned realm, whether it's with fantastic or boring or whatever its quality or quantities might be, we're just observing the, the, its true nature as, as the, that it arises and ceases and that we begin to really see that it's empty of any self-quality or any kind of permanent self-qualities because there, there's no, you can't find a permanent self in anything whatsoever.
And that's a relief. I find that a relief. It really, it was really heavy and burdensome to be a person, I found. To all the conditioning that went into my life before I had the insight into anatta, then get increasingly heavy. At 33, you can really create incredible heavy burden of self-views and fears and anxieties and worries by the age 33. Burnt out case. So I felt really ancient and old at 33. 32, I just felt really worn out because of this incredible burden I'd accumulated. Was weighing me down. So then the insight into anatta was a was a re- like a relief, and sometimes they refer to the the realization of that of non-attachment or nibbana or the uh, or the realization of not self as relief. In some Mahayana sutras t- or literature, they, what is it like? It's it's like it's like it's the feeling you have when you've been carrying something very heavy and you put it down. What is that? It's relief, isn't it? <laughs> you notice what it's like to be re- to feel relief from a heavy burden. Not to have to become anything. Not, not like in in this life here. Think of how you can make being a monk or a nun into kind of a, a burdensome duty. That it becomes you you become weighed down by the awesome uh, duty that you've involved yourself in. You've got to become someone who gets rid of your kilesas, your defilements, and you purify your mind and be a virtuous, impeccable person with. We're full of loving kindness and compassion and joy and uh, all this and and then oh what a burden got to become all that look at me I'm so far away I, uh, mean thought sometimes I, I even curse silently in my mind I've even felt irritation sometimes even downright anger and even downright murder, murderous feelings towards some of these people here. And now I'm supposed to be kind of like like a one of these uh, bodhisattvas. May all beings be happy. So that we can make the holy life into a burden, an impossible burden that we carry around but then that's misuse of it, isn't it? Because the holy life is is a life without a burden. Purity is not doesn't mean that you never think impurely. It means that you know impure thoughts are just conditions of the mind and nothing. So if you think, oh, I have impure thoughts, so I'm an impure person. I'm a dirty old man. I'm a hopeless case. I'm no good. I have these impure thoughts. Then you've, then that's a heavy burden that I've created. 
But any impure thoughts that happen to go through the mind is a scene. What are they? They arise, they cease. I've never seen, I've never had an impure thought that had any permanency to it. Have you? Anyone here? Or maybe you never have impure thoughts. <coughs> I've noticed this about, and pure thoughts also, any thoughts, they are definitely impermanent. And that's, oh, that's, that's the truth of the way it is. Impure thoughts when seen as that which begins and ends lose that, loses that sense of being a personal thing. You're looking at its quality. As it, I mean, you're looking at its characteristic. Impure thoughts begin and they end. And that way you're not saying, oh, this is an impure thought. I shouldn't be thinking like this. I wish I had a, a mind that was pure and never had an impure thought. And blah, 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 and goes on into a heavy burden, guilt and, and remorse and worry and, and, uh, and feeling of self-aversion arises from that. But once it's seen exactly as it is, that's purity, isn't it? The mind is, is, is pure. It, it, your mind can never be stained is never impure. It's a totally impossible. Impurity only is an illusion of attachment to the, the, to the view of the, fi- the five khandhas as being oneself. It's only an illusion, illusory impurity. It's not, it's nothing real. These terms, the conditioned and the unconditioned, the born, the unborn, the created, the uncreated, the originated, the unoriginated, these are worth contemplating because they they relate to each other. And notice that the the conditioned world, the born and the created, are what we feel most used to. This is what we identify with, what we, what we're conditioned by these, and what we attach to the conditioned realm or the self. The unconditioned then is not a, an annihilation of anything but of seeing the relationship that, that whatever arises ceases. So you're aware of just like when thought ceases there's no condition arising at that moment when a thought ceases. So then you, you, you notice, you realize that cessation. There's no condition there, so that's the unconditioned. As simple as that. You realize that. You, you notice. Because you don't notice that unless it, you, you make an effort to notice because your habit is to go from one condition to another. Isn't it? You saw you d- the, the totally unenlightened, unawakened avicca, bhajaya, sankara character is just going from one condition to another.
Now, in, in our experience as a human being, this is the way what we must learn from, from this very humbling uh, way. I mean, it doesn't seem like very much, does it? Not like being able to stand at the at the top of the universe and watch the expansion and contraction of a universal system in all its grandeur. I mean, just this, just the ability to think and to to see the nature of thought and perception arise and cease in the mind. That's what we must learn from, from that. Not from the grand position of God, from the... From the uh, from the position outside it all, in the, outside the macrocosm, but in the, the microcosm of the way things are it, within the limitations of this of the of the forms we find ourselves with. So we explore, examine, investigate the conditioned and the unconditioned, or space and form. Like space, say just with the eye, isn't it? The conditions are in the space here. It's with eye consciousness, you can see. We observe space and form. How many of you would observe space? Most people just observe the forms in the space, don't they? They see the flowers and the The space was here long before this room ever came in, into it. But then our, our view is that this room has a lot of space. Or maybe your view is that it doesn't have enough space. I don't know. <laughs> but if you take that just beyond the, the wall, you realize that the walls are merely a kind of limiting the space. But the space is, is endless, doesn't it? It goes on and on and on, the, the space. We can't see to the end of space or the unconditioned, can we? It just, it's, it's endless. So we, we put limits on the space by building walls and, and we see that, that this is a room. We might think it's a big room or a little room, depending, relative, isn't it, to the situation. You're having a, a weekend retreat with three people one of those uh, non-unpopular weekend retreats, three people turn up, you say, three people in a big room. If you have a very popular weekend retreat with a hundred people, then you think, oh, it's a small room. Is the room ultimately big or ultimately small? The space in this room, dependent, isn't it, on the other conditions, how many or how few. And when this building falls down, there'll still be the space. And we can build more, build it bigger and bigger and bigger. The walls, expanding the walls to where, as far as we can. And we still wouldn't be able to contain the space, the total space, would we? There's no way we can contain the totality of space. It's like the unconditioned. It's not... It only leaves us with this sense of unknowing, of not knowing, of mystery. 
and it leaves us it leaves the mind the conditioned mind the conditioned mind stops it can't it can't conceive something it can't conceive the unconditioned or the unborn the uncreated unoriginated you can't you can't imagine it so the images the imagined the the uh the conditions and the born, the created, the originated are the very things we must investigate, not judge according to their qualities, but see according to their characteristics of their form as a limitation that begins and ends, that that arises and ceases. And that from that we begin to understand, to have the insight into the unconditioned. So the condition take us to the point to the unconditioned. All conditions point to the unconditioned. We begin to appreciate all conditions as that which helps us to remember, to realize the unconditioned. So we appreciate that relationship. All of it, the the dirty thoughts, the the fear and anxiety, the uh, the personal problems. The, the good, the bad, the inspiration, the, the desperation, whatever you're feeling, the conditions, all conditions point to the unconditioned when you're seeing it as Dhamma rather than taking it all personally, seeing it from the, the avicca, you, you're now using vicha, true knowledge. So I offer this for your contemplation.